0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. There is more fallout from the ongoing bids to rename some of our streets and buildings. Late yesterday, York District School Board trustees voted to rename The Sir John A. Macdonald Public School, because our first prime minister is considered an architect of the country's residential school system. Now, this is seen as a part of indigenous reconciliation efforts. And of course, it comes after the discovery of the remains of more than a thousand indigenous children at three former residential schools. Now, McDonald's name is already off the building. Meanwhile, as we have reported extensively, the city is one step closer to renaming Dundas Street after the executive committee of Toronto City Council unanimously approved that and it will go before the full council next week. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 four47. 40 and uh well has Henry Dundas's role in the whole existence and issue of slavery in the British Empire been misrepresented okay. his descendant Jennifer Dundas says it has and she joins me along with Dr. Patrice Dutiel professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University hello and welcome to you both hello hello Uh, Jennifer, let us begin with you. You say that your ancestor's legacy and his role has been distorted.
2: Yes, I should clarify, he's not really my ancestor. We come from the same clan, but you'd have to go back like 300 years to find common cousins, I think. Um, My interest in this is as a clan member um, and uh, a family that has a really strong legacy of public service. So the way, the primary way that this has been misrepresented is that he's been painted as opposing abolition when throughout his life, Henry Dundas spoke against slavery and the slave trade. Not once in public or in private is there any record of him speaking against it. Uh, he started his legal career um, opposing it. He was uh, the lead counsel in a case where a slave uh, was fighting for his freedom. Henry Dundas took that up to the highest court in Scotland and won, and not just for that person, but he won a statement, a declaration from the court that nobody could be a slave on Scottish soil. And he went ahead then uh, in his political career, and uh, 1792 was the first time he spoke about it publicly, and he was the first politician in Parliament to say, we must abolish both slavery and the slave trade together. We can't just focus on one, it won't work, if we deal with them together
1: and we do it gradually, then we can make progress. And Jennifer, um, what the activists are saying uh, is that because he advocated doing it gradually and because he inserted that into uh, legislation which was put before the House and which was rejected by the House beforehand, that he had a key role in perpetuating slavery. And it's because of that word, Gradual, so you think that's not fair? Totally not fair. There are there
2: are a number of errors
1: embedded in in those statements.
2: One is that there was legislation. There was no legislation. The leader of the abolition movement, William Wilberforce, was bringing motions of of statements of principle before the House. If the House would endorse those motions, they would be sent to the House of Lords. If the House of Lords would endorse them, it would come back to the House of Commons, and then the process
1: of enacting legislation would begin. It's a long process. That's, that's right, and if I may interject, um, e- e- the House of Lords uh, blocked it until 1807. Absolutely. The
2: House of Lords always had a majority against abolition, as well as the king. Those were two insurmountable obstacles. Nothing happened if the king, you know, no legislation was passed if the king didn't like it. You know, the king had a much more powerful role in those days uh, than the queen does now. and And the House of Lords, like the Senate, could just stop it dead in its tracks. And so it wasn't as if Um, William Wilberforce had a chance of achieving legislation for abolition in 1792. Even he said that he knew he was facing defeat, but he wanted to do it his way. He wanted to fight it his way. And what happened was Dundas said, this is never going to work. Let's get a motion that the House can get behind. And then we've got a statement of principle that has a chance with the House of Lords and the King." Let's bring in Dr. In history, Parliament voted to endorse a motion with a statement of principle opposing the slave trade and seeking its abolition. Uh,
1: Let's bring in Dr. Patrice Dutille. Uh, In a general way, um, what do you make of the way this whole situation has been portrayed, you know, in, in the city staff report and in general?
3: Really, it's a complete travesty. It's a complete travesty. Everything Ms. Dundas just said is exactly correct. We have to stop thinking that the 1790s is 2020. It's not. We're dealing with a completely different period and these this little generation. We're talking about William Pitt the Younger. We're talking about Wilberforce, you've already mentioned. We're talking about Dundas. We're also talking about John Gray Simcoe, who was sitting in the House of Commons, who who bore witness to the fact that when William Pitt, the younger, saw his motions defeated, I mean, these guys were all against slavery, fundamentally against slavery. They fought slavery. And today we have this crooked finger coming out of 2021 saying, oh, those guys 200 years ago, they stood against progress. It's completely the opposite. These guys were the very embodiment of progress. In their day, they were heroes. They
1: and of course, uh, speaking of John yes. um in 1793, there yeah. was an act that prevented further introduction of slaves into Upper Canada, and that was the first piece of legislation in the British Empire to limit slavery, because it didn't get rid of it. And it tells you two things, Libby. First of all, You actually said the word, an act
3: to prevent the further introduction of slaves, the further introduction. It's like gradual. These guys knew the politics of their day. They knew that most people in leadership were in favor of slavery. Simcoe comes in. He's a great friend of Dundas. They are of the same ilk when it comes to slavery. And all he could do is pass an act like that. And by the way, that act is challenged six years later. By the Legislative Assembly of Upper Canada, because they want to restore slavery in, in Upper Canada, and it'll be defeated by in Legislative Council largely because um, Simcoe again, you know, used the used the, 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 the backstairs of politics
1: and was able to defeat it. Uh, Jennifer Dundas, completely wrong. Uh, you are former Crown prosecutor. I am a current Crown prosecutor. I'm sorry. It's okay, a former journalist. A former uh, journalist. (laughs) This journalist (laughs) should have been a little more careful. Um, So there are serious people who are advocating this. Uh, It's a city staff report. There's a city manager. There's there's the mayor. I mean, do you think they just uh, didn't, read the historical record? Or do you think they're just, uh, you know, putting their fingers up and and seeing where the tide is?
2: You know, I don't entirely blame them, uh, because they have been misled. That staff report that provides a historical background on Henry Dundas is so riddled with serious errors. Like, just Just blatant errors. For example, they said that Henry Dundas voted for several motions, or voted against several motions uh, for abolition. He never voted against any motion for
1: abolition of the slave trade,
2: ever. And they said he voted against a few,
1: like... It, those it were probably my mind when I read that. the amendments so for the years terrible? where it would happen. Those things changed a few times. Uh, one, one question that I do have for you, Jennifer, and Dr. Dutile, I mean, what I'm thinking is this guy, uh, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, never set foot into Canada.
3: No, no, he never did.
1: So, I mean, my question is, why should he have so much real estate named after him anyway? Well, Libby,
3: me, I mean, and this street was named was in 1810, So over two hundred years ago, um, it was, it was a Simcoe. You know, Simcoe gave the name to people he knew and to people he respected, um, and, and, and Dundas was one of those people. Um, but you're pointing to it something very important here, which is the fact that we've also have a history two hundred years of Dundas Street. Dundas Street has been an artery of our daily existence in Toronto for over 200 years. We're throwing that away. I mean, it's, it's, I mean all sorts of history has happened on Dundas Street in our lives and, and you know, in over the last 200 years. Why are we giving that away? It's, it's, it, we're, again, cutting ourselves off from our roots. We are, we are telling society that our predecessors are of no value, that there is no point in remembering, in remembering the people who built this city,
1: and I think that's fundamentally wrong. Jennifer Dundas, do you see you know, it that uh, way? I, yes, I do. And
2: I'm also saddened by the fact that uh, that the people who are activists around this and, are, and in an anti-Dundas camp, I would say, they're telling um, Black people a story about their history that has to be very painful to hear. And it is so wrong. It's wrong to do that and cause this feeling of outrage and betrayal and pain in people when it's not based on sound evidence. That's the first point. But the other thing that um, is important here is that Henry Dundas was the Secretary for Home Affairs, so he was responsible for all of the British colonies at that point, very senior cabinet minister. So in his oversight of what was going on in Canada, he did a number of very important and progressive things. First of all, he's the one who commissioned John Graves Simcoe to be the lieutenant governor, knowing that he was a staunch abolitionist and knowing that that was part of the legislative agenda that he would pursue. And when when Simcoe first tried to introduce immediate abolition and failed, Dundas supported him in going forward with another effort, which was to pursue gradual abolition. So there's one thing. In Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, there were Black loyalists. These were former slaves from the U.S. who fought alongside the British in the American Revolution. They were promised, in exchange for their loyalty, that they could go to British colonies and they would be given land and other benefits so they would have the beginning of a new life on their own land. The governors of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick only gave land to the white loyalists, and the black loyalists were cut out. It was a travesty. Henry Dungas wrote a letter to both of the governors and said, you give those people their land, you give it to them now, and you compensate them for the delay in giving it to them. And for those loyalists who no longer wanted to stay there, and and many didn't, 1,200 didn't, he offered free passage to Africa to a colony that the British held in Sierra Leone. Another big um, step in Canada.
1: That, you know, that so, I, I, I did not know about that. Thanks for telling us about that. Let's take a couple of calls. We've got Sita in Mississauga. Hi, Sita. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you?
4: Good, nice
1: to have you back. Thank you.
4: <laughs> yes, Henry Dundas did write according to the information I'm reading We should not change the street's name. He was a lawyer. He was fighting to abolish slavery. But the reason he put it off for 15 years is because of the opposition he was facing. And by putting it off for 15 years, in that time, he was able to accomplish that. Um, Simcoe here in Canada was trying to abolish slavery in Canada as well. But he couldn't do it without the help from the British. So I feel the reason why um, Henry Dundas never... Even though he never stepped foot in Canada, he was recognized for the work he did in abolish slavery.
1: Okay, Sita, thanks for that. Yeah. Let's go to Marianne in North York. Hello, Marianne. Hi, how are you today? I'm fine today. Thank you. Um, so I'm totally
5: against it. Very disappointed in our politicians. Um, I just have to make a little thought I had so... There's thousands of people in Canada, I'm sure, have surnames and may possibly ancestors that were slave owners, unfortunately. So what do we do? Change all our names? And, you know, we're going to be offending people because, oh my goodness, you know, my name may be connected to an ancestor,
1: Good question. And, uh, you know, even if Toronto renames it, it it's uh, the, the Dundas uh, is all the streets leading to and from Dundas, Ontario, are Dundas, and it's it's in all the other municipalities. And I'm just waiting to see this crop up elsewhere. Marianne, thanks for your call. Uh, I'd like to turn to the Sir John A. MacDonald thing. Now, M- M- Professor Duteal, Dr. Duteal, first of all, he is considered to be one of the architects of the residential school system. Uh, is that true?
3: Of course it is. He legislated in 19, 1883 the establishment of residential schools for Indian children. He also said that they should not be mandatory. And he also said that they should be open to girls and boys. Absolutely. Nobody's denying that.
1: Okay. He said they should not be mandatory. So, how That's did they right. become mandatory?
3: Uh, five years after he died, four years after he died, they became mandatory. But I say they became mandatory, but even then it was not enforced. We have to remember that less than one third of indigenous children ever attended a residential school. So it's not like everybody did. I'm not, I'm not minimizing the pain and hurt of those schools, but just like with Dundas, Johnny McDonald has been fundamentally misunderstood by people who do not take the trouble of examining the historical record.
1: What about uh, some of the uh, most disturbing stories that we're hearing from out West said that uh, they talk about parents who sent their kids to residential school because if they didn't, one of them would have to go to jail. How did that come?
3: No, that's anecdotal. Uh, this is this is for me, and i this is hearsay i don't know nobody knows what the individual you know r c m p officers or government agents would have said to threaten these people who were in complete ignorance, and they probably did say cruel things like that, but I mean that there's not that is not the government policy and when we are condemning Johnny McDonald, we have to remember this is an important point. We have to remember that it is his successors that have been just as as responsible for what happened in those schools. If we're going to name, if we're going to remove the name of John M. McDonald, we have to remove the name of wils fidler We have to remove the name of Mackenzie King. If we're going to remove Henry Dundas, we must remove Lord Simcoe. We must remove most of the people in the cabinet, in the executive council of Upper Canada. Because many of those people, were also slave owners. There were six or seven members of council in Upper Canada who were slave owners. I mean, where does this stop? It's interesting. I find it very interesting that the mayor now says, oh, well, now that we've sacrificed the memory of Henry Borden, we now have to have a process because this is not going to go on, you know, in in this manner going forward. Well, maybe Mr. Mayor should have thought of this last year and, you know, maybe stop reacting to the the fever of the moment, and create changes that are not supported widely, and that will cause an expenditure of, what, $6 million, Well, million? that's what they
1: say now. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, you don't believe it I await the final bill. Yeah, I can tell
3: you, I have a lot of purpose. I have a lot of use for $10 million. We can start fixing up our public libraries. We can start fixing up our social housing for $10 bucks. Come on, this is not a serious, This is just not a serious piece of policy work. I think the city staff has let people down. City council has let people down. And the mayor has let people down. I'm very disappointed.
1: Well, I mean, the other interesting thing in this, I mean, I saw that in the executive committee, uh, two city councillors that I would have thought might be opposed were absent. I I mean, uh, Jennifer Dundas, do you think there's people are are actually afraid to oppose this?
2: Well, I think that the political climate around this is very difficult. And actually, I think that's one of the reasons why city staff should have been more careful. What they did was they went to the ultimate question of whether uh, the name Dundas should be removed. And not only did they say it should be removed from the street, but they want to erase it from every public space in Toronto. You know, they went as, a, as far as they could, and then they boxed council in with this statement of facts that is so biased. That it's it's really shocking, um, and so what they've done is they've they've counselors into a corner. How can they say no when they're when they're facing this statement of facts that is so damning of Henry Dundas? That's unfair. They've also cut out the public from public participation in this decision. I understood last fall that when they were given instructions about what they were going to do, they were supposed to set up a. A process of public consultation, there would be online surveys, there would be uh, places you could email your thoughts, there would be online discussions, a panel discussion of who Henry Dundas was and what should happen with his name, all of that. None of that happened, none of that appears to be going to happen because they've already made the decision for Toronto. Um,
1: I guess it'll happen for the, the new name, but um, yeah, so pff, Exactly.
2: And one of the great ironies of this is that Young Street is named after um, a, a governor from the Cape of South Africa who actually traded covertly himself, personally, in slaves from Mozambique. And it was Henry Dundas who got him fired for that. So we're going to end up in the situation where the Dundas name gets removed if this goes ahead, and the Young name is going to remain in place, and I suspect that people will be so tired of this by the time this process is finished, they're not going to want to take
1: on the Oh, you know itself. what? I, b- I bet there's some activists listening now who are thinking, hey, that's a good idea for the next one. Uh, uh, Dr. Duteal, I'm going to give you the last word on all of this, uh, and especially on uh, you know the John, John A. McDonald statues and school names and all that.
3: Well, I mean, we, we are living in a moment where evidently the tragic events of uh, the United States last May, death of George Floyd, has has had reverberations. So Ryerson is looking at changing its names. The, the Ryerson statue has been demolished. We're changing John A. McDonald's Schools are removing the name McDonald. You know the architect of our country is being forgotten, erased from public memory. And now we're looking at death. You know, logic should dictate that we start to, to remove all the names of problematic people in our history, and maybe our future is going to be, uh, you know, a future of streets called Street Number One, Street Number Two, <laughs> yeah. Street Number Three, uh, and you know, and that's you know, that's one of the great things about Toronto is that we actually have names to our street. We could have been New York, you know, we we have names to our street, and each name should have a memory, and we should be telling our citizens. What's the true nature of those names? If there are names that are really repulsive, if there are people who have done truly atrocious things, truly atrocious things, then their names should be removed. But let's use our street names as an open book of history and educate ourselves to the wisdom of the people who who were were honoured and to the wisdom of those people who made the honours in the first place. And let's not erase 200 years of gundas. I hope that there's a motion in in the in City Council that the budget that is awarded to this project will be exactly zero, and that we can all forget about it. You um, know,
1: uh, wrapping things up, I I have to say, I think I think the one positive thing that's come out of this is people, uh, and I hope you know, having a a good look looking at the history of this, because I have to admit, my myself. Uh, having lived here for a very long time, I never once gave a single thought to who Dundas was named after. Yeah, of course, of course.
3: So, we should have, we should have, we should write, you know, what is the importance of this person? What they do. And if, they, if, they, if they're people who were really awful in our history, then we should remove them. But we should do it with logic. We should do it with fairness. We should do it, you know, methodically. Not just, you know,
1: top of the head, knee-jerk reaction that will have very
6: expensive consequences, potentially.
1: Okay. Uh, Thank you so much, Dr. Patrice Dutille and Jennifer Dundas, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again. I really appreciate your contribution. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for for inviting me. Great to talk to you. Okay. people uh who have called in i've got to move things along free for all friday is coming up tomorrow i'm sure that this will be a very hot topic so please call back again because i've got to move on to the next thing after a break
0: you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one fight back with libby Snymer on zoomer radio
1: Welcome back. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath is on an election-style tour of the province talking about all aspects of health care. She's promising to abolish for-profit long-term care to clear the wait list. And uh, as of today, she also wants to make sure that the nursing homes which failed seniors during COVID don't get their license renewed. Now, she's also promising to spend a billion dollars to fix home care. But does she have the right prescription? Uh, let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Uh, what do you think, after all that we have been through with COVID, exposed these horrible conditions, horrible gaps in long-term care it is a time to let somebody else change things please call in and now i'd like to welcome ndp mpp Franc Jelina from nickel belt she is the critic for health and natalie Mera, executive director of the ontario health coalition uh good good afternoon and welcome thanks for joining us
6: good afternoon libby
1: good oh. afternoon so first, uh, I'd like to turn to the newsworthy thing today, which is uh, uh, Andrea Horvath says that uh, nursing homes with horrible COVID records should not have their licenses renewed. Uh, so, France, um, do you uh, not trust the government to do this? I mean, they have said that they are going to fix this.
6: I, I, I don't trust them at all to um, to fix uh, anything in our long-term care system. Uh, let's face it, we have laws in place that said that all of our long-term care are supposed to get a comprehensive uh, review every year. They did eight of them in the three years they have been in power, and we have 626 long-term care homes. What happened to the rest of them? We know that some long-term care homes have been cited with uh, shortcomings, with serious gap in care uh, that puts the lives uh, of their residents in, in jeopardy, and nothing happens. They continue to have their license renewed. Um, the, the owners, uh, usually they're a number of corporations, uh, just um, know that all of their rooms will be busy all the time. It doesn't matter what condition they're in. People will continue to pay $2,000 a month for those little rooms, and they don't care. And the government has the tools to do things better, but so far has refused to use any of those tools and keeps handing over uh, good money after bad to those for-profit corporations. Uh,
1: Natalie Mara, we have a new Minister of Long-Term Care. Uh, it, it seems to me that the government knows they, they have to look like they're fixing this or it's going to be a big problem come election time. So what do you think about it?
5: Yeah, Libby, thanks for asking and thanks for doing this um, because I, I think it's vitally important. I mean, 4,000 human beings, 4,000 residents almost in long-term care died from COVID-19 in Ontario alone. And many more died from malnutrition and horrible negligence in conditions that are just unacceptable. And really, honestly, um, nothing has changed. I mean, the care levels now are less than they were. They're lower than they were at the start of the pandemic. So they have not been improved. They're not one home has been fined. Not even the very worst. And the government has been sitting on powers to find the homes since they took office. They were, they, the uh, previous government, Eric Hoskins, when he was a health minister, passed new powers to find the homes up to $100,000. Uh, and they've been sitting on it. They've just refused to enact that part of the legislation. Not one license has been revoked. Not one. Not even the homes that were infested with cockroaches, where food was left rotting, mattresses put on the floor so the residents couldn't get up and walk around, like conditions that you would face criminal charges for if it was your pet that you kept in those conditions. Uh, And not only that, but now they're giving thousands of new bed licenses. These aren't renewals. The licenses are over, um, and, uh, and so they have to rebuild the homes. Uh, these are the oldest homes that haven't been renovated in 50 years or redeveloped in 50 years, most of them owned by for-profits, and they're giving new licenses and expansions to the same companies that uh, that engaged in that kind of behavior through the pandemic and before. That's completely unacceptable, and we are in full support of the call for those companies not to be um, given new licenses and rewarded for their terrible behavior and not to throw good public money after bad you know, at these homes, we should be developing them and running them in the public interest and the interest of the residents, and not taking, you know, not for profit and greed. Uh,
1: yeah, in terms of of the money, France, uh, where's the money going to come from, and and how can you clear the wait list and and get new homes built
6: fast enough? Well, it's um, right, right now. Ontario has this model of. 128 beds, a big institution. But other models exist that are way smaller, that take a whole lot less time to build. They're homes like, like regular owned homes you would see anywhere as long as you make them fully wheelchair accessible. And, and people live in congregate living of six, seven, eight people together rather than 128 or 300 or 500, some of the big homes and it it is a model that exists in many parts of the world. Um, You're able to up uh, the number of beds quite quickly uh, with models that are quite different than what we have now. Let's face it, um, I used to go, and they were open to a lot of uh, seniors' uh, center, when I would ask, who's looking forward to going into a nursing home? Zero. Nobody wanted to go there. But when you start to talk about who would like to have support in their homes and who uh, would like to uh, stay in their homes as long as they can. Many, many of them are interested in this. They may not be able to go grocery shopping by their own anymore, to vacuum their place anymore uh, by themselves, but they they still want to live at home. They want that support. So between bolstering our home care system so that it meets their needs Um, bringing in new models for people who do need long-term care in smaller accommodation. You can get rid of the wait list. Right now, we know that up to 18,000 people in our long-term care home could live at home if home care had not failed them. There is room for improvement, and that improvement can come quite quickly.
1: Okay, well, I want to get to home care in a minute, but let's take a couple of calls. We've got Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat.
7: Good afternoon. I mean, the problem is who is going to pay? And, you know, it all sounds nice to say that we can find new methods to do this, but we've got an aging population, myself included, and there is going to be a great demand and we've got to get this and get it paid for. And there isn't a lot of money out there to be, to be, to be had. So, I mean, It all sounds great, but, you know, the problem is many of the people coming up with these ideas don't know anything about accounting or money or where it comes from. I'm just dealing with a friend of mine who has dementia, and it's now costing us $8,000 a month to have him looked after. So, you know, luckily he has saved the money, and, and that will be spent on that. But people have to realize... Government can't pay for all of this. It's that simple.
1: Okay, Pat, I'm going to let France respond to that.
6: Uh, Pat, you're absolutely right uh, that uh, the government has a role to play and the public has a role to play. So right now, if your friend was to go to a long-term care home, he would have to continue to pay rent in a ward. It's a month, and if he wants a private room, it's still $2,680 a month. So the people will have to continue to pay for their rent. The government would be there to provide the care. This model, where uh, people continue to pay for their own rent, to pay for part of their food, would continue. Um, The government we have in place, the Ford government, uh, is giving license to build 15,000 new homes, Uh, those 15,000 new homes, the people who will go in there, the care will be paid for by the government. The people who live in those homes will pay rent every month. What we're saying is that rather than simply building more of what we have, let's look at other models of care where we can take your culture into account, we can take your language into account in smaller homes, that could be closer to where you live. Um, but at the end of the day, people will have to pay rent. They will have to pay part of their food. The government will only pay for the care.
1: Okay. Uh, Jane in Scarborough, um, can you try to make it
6: fairly quick, please? Hi, Jane. Um, hi. It's, I'm just saying it's not only the for profit that needs to be overhauled. My mother was in a city run home. And was quarantined to her room for over a month at the beginning of COVID. The staff brought the virus to her, and it killed her in 36 I'm 36 so hours. sorry. Now, the thing is is that the things that I saw going on in the home in the three years that she lived there, it's not just for profit, it's the city too. They need to overhaul the care to the seniors, because some of the stuff I saw made my stomach curl. And if I spoke out it came back on my mom. I've heard people say that.
1: And I know that overall city run homes have a better record than the others, but I'm very sorry to hear what you have to say. I'm going to let Natalie respond to that. Jane, thanks for your call. Thank you.
5: Yeah. First thing, I'm so, so sorry about what happened to your mom. Like just heartbreaking and i don't disagree i mean there are there are well-run for-profit homes and terribly run municipal homes that exist but without question the high you know the death rates in the for-profit homes not to be at all glib about it were you know four times higher three times higher five times higher six times higher uh, for all of the various chains than the municipal homes so quite a huge difference when you look at it sort of system-wide that does not answer obviously for your mom but the other thing that people uh, that we see because we've been so close to this advocating for 25 years is that the for-profit industry advocates for um ending surprise inspections for example for getting rid of the minimum care standards that do exist the one rn per home only one per home you know um for replacing psws with completely untrained workers for you know um all kinds of deregulation that is not in the interests of the residents and they're very powerful and that influence on governments has been pernicious it's been terrible uh and so people who you know sort of see it at the individual level at the home don't necessarily realize that that's going on behind the scenes but that is what has been going on now for 25 years behind the scenes and it needs to stop you know we need enforcement We need regulation. We need better care levels and better care standards. And to the gentleman, Pat, who spoke before, we need the money that is going into long-term care, the public money that goes there anyway, to actually go to care and not be taken off in the millions every month for profit. That's critical. So let's say we have to spend money. I mean, we're not going to not provide care for people. We have to spend money on it. Let's make sure that money actually goes to improving care.
1: Okay. I'd like to turn to home care and I'm going to be on a little bit of a soapbox here. And I'm just looking at the clock. I'm not sure I have enough time because I have just, uh, come off a period when I needed a little bit of home care. And I see that, uh, in Andrea Horvath's platform, she's saying that the problem is a patchwork of poor profit companies. And I just want to say that my experience was the exact opposite of that. Uh, I left the hospital with a, a, a thing inside my body that had to be looked after just a little bit. Um, so they called the Lynn. The LINs were supposed to be abolished. The LINs instead have changed their names. They are now the Home and Community Care Support Services. They organized a private nursing care company that was giving me the care. But the person who had the ultimate authority on my care was from the Lynn. She never saw me, never spoke to me directly, um, and did not care to. And uh, um, it seemed to me that her only uh, thing that she wanted to do was to cut me off care as quickly as possible. The people from the private... Uh, nursing home, they were kind of my advocates. The only reason i mean i don 't have time to get into it and and the 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 story of each one uh it 's like uh, it 's i think quite crazy uh The only reason I did not get cut off care I think is because I know how to navigate the system i found nurse navigators uh but um again um all. Uh, It's like, um, you know, when you have doctors who are small business people, you have oversight from OHIP, which you need. But in this case, I mean, can you imagine if every patient in a doctor's office had a third party public servant second guessing everything the doctor said that you needed, which is uh, the situation here? And, uh, you know, I'm just saying, no wonder all the money goes to administration because you have two Separate levels of of administration there's a care coordinator at 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 uh, the nursing company, and there's one at the Lynn who never sees you, never talks to you, and makes the decisions so um who wants to talk to that
6: well, well I, I I can go first I can tell you that there are uh, just to pick up on on your last point I can tell you that there are often many more layers your for-profit, we'll say Bayshore, Paramed, or Care Partners, um, often subcontract. So if you had needed physio, they would have subcontracted your physio to another for-profit company who would then sometimes uh, subcontract also to another, and all of those are layers of administration. Uh, Could we do better? Yes, absolutely. The complaints that I get the most... I've been the health critic for my party for 14 years. Uh, Not a day goes by that we don't have at least one call of someone who's usually PSWs did not show up. So uh, you need help to get out of bed in the morning. The PSW doesn't show up. You need need help to get back into bed at night. The PSW doesn't show up. You wake up at 1 o'clock in the morning. You're still in your wheelchair. Nobody has showed up. That is the... Not a day goes by that I don't have that kind of a complaint. Um, It happens all the time. The the big for-profit company cannot recruit and retain a stable workforce because they are not good jobs. They're not good jobs because they don't pay. They're not full-time. They don't have benefits. They don't get paid for travel. In my neck of the woods, it's hundreds of kilometers that they have to travel, and, and it goes on and on. It was never like this. In 1996, when Mike Harris came in power and brought in the competitive bidding system, the for-profit was supposed to do things better, faster, cheaper. None of that happened. Our home care system quality took a, a nose dive. Well, nosedive. just now yeah. most people are like you. Their care get rationed to, to By the
1: By the public sector.
6: We're asking for minimum standards that would apply to everyone, no matter where they are, where they live.
1: Okay. Um, Natalie, I'm going to give you the last word, but again, and the difference here is that it wasn't a PSW, a a nurse, Uh, but again, um, it was uh, the public sector. And again, you know, you represent patients, and every aspect of healthcare now is saying it's important uh to deal with the patients but this is like the patients is like a, a non entity. Yeah. You
5: know I I like I totally understand what you're describing because everyone everyone's home care is rationed. That's the problem, right? And um so one there's the rationing that you experienced. and two like Franz, the the vast majority of complaints that we get about home care are from missed visits, workers just not showing up. And so people who are paraplegic, cannot move, can't do anything, you know, their bursts in their bed, they're waiting for care and no one shows. That is so common because in order to bring in the private companies, they had to contract them, right? They had to sell volumes of service. So the the companies would bid on, you know, 100,000 one-hour home care visits or, you know, half-hour visits or what have you. And uh, they had to make home care kind of widget-like in order to be able to do that. What we've said, and what it looks like the NDP announced, was that they would reform it into like a home care system, which we don't have. The devil really is in the details, but there are a few things that are sort of inescapable. One is that the markup, so the cost difference between what they pay the nurse or the PSW and what they are funded, is huge in the for-profits compared to the non-profits. So they're taking that money for profit and administration. The second is, the last I looked, there was something like 14,000 contracts across Ontario that had to be negotiated and a whole bureaucracy to do that. And they don't work because the, com- the companies can't fulfill the contracts because they don't have the workers. Okay, so but- You have all these missed visits. So it's not working. It does need that kind of fundamental reform, again, to get money to care.
1: Sorry, tried to be quick. Okay, um, we're totally out of time. Again, I'm sure we will be revisiting this topic. Thank you so much, Natalie Mera and Frans Jelena. You're you welcome. Thank nice you, to talk to you. Thanks, Fran. Okay, bye-bye. 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 We're going to take another break, and when we come back, how do we get the financial district back to work? We'll be talking to the CEO of the Toronto Region Board of Trade.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Uh, the financial district has been one of the hardest hit areas by COVID. The once bustling path underneath the towers is a dead zone. The city is partnering with the Toronto Region Board of Trade and other local business groups to help drive a safe return to office towers, restaurants and shops in the downtown core and elsewhere and now i'm joined by jan de silva ceo and president of the toronto region board of trade hi jan thank you so much hey libby great to join you so um you have a you have a a a special framework for this how are you going to get people to feel safe coming back to the towers well, let me let me start uh, kind of at the beginning of our work. It was last October uh, that a
4: group uh, came together—the Financial District Pilot Zone Group—we've called ourselves—with the mayor, with Urban Land Institute, uh, with the Financial District BIA, building owners, large employers, and a number of our innovators and uh, scientific advisors as well with a goal to say, when the time is right, how do we get ready now to reopen? And when you think of the downtown core, this is our largest employment zone in the country. 550,000 daytime workers came into that zone prior to COVID and 2,500 small businesses relied on them. And reopening in the context of that zone is much more than just a safe office. A safe office is important, but We've got the path, as you mentioned. We've got Union Station. We've got food courts. We've got elevators that need to get people up and down. So we needed a plan that connected The entirety of the of the zone. And in March, we did some nanos research with some of those downtown employees and found that 64% this was back in March before vaccinations were at the amazing pace that they're going now. 64% signaled they were ready to come back to the office as soon as the okay was given. Um, More recent surveys are suggesting 80% of downtown workers want to get back into that in-person contact. So I think the workforce is signaling they want to come back. We are doing everything we can to use this
1: uh, planning period to make sure that all of our businesses are ready as well. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into the weeds, but the first thing that strikes me is the elevator. Like Right now, yep. if I get into an elevator, it's it, depending on the size, uh, there are little footprints for either two people or four people. Mm-hmm. My recollection of those elevators in the towers, they, they're, they're packed.
4: Well, yes. And so here's here's the thing. We've got uh, companies that have been sitting around the table that have operations elsewhere in the world. And so we've been able to understand some of the best practices that have been deployed there to deal with things like that. And so Sydney, Australia, for example, reopened much sooner than we did, had the same phenomena in their central business district with these elevators. And they've done a couple of things. Uh, Number one, you clearly need to have uh, that distancing still happening. Uh, but they've also looked at using staggered work hours because when reopening officially happens, it won't be 100% back to work five days a week. You, we're going to have a hybrid model in place. It'll be um, several days a week, possibly. For some workers, they'll continue to work from home. But for those workers that are returning, it's also about how do we stagger the hours of operation so you can better uh, manage the flow and the demands on the elevator systems themselves. Something else that's a rush hour in elevators is lunchtime. And, you know, there's lineups to get elevators to go down to the food court. Ritual Food, a Toronto food delivery company, also works in Sydney. And they have innovated such that they now, uh, they've worked with employers to install delivery stations in the actual office. So in the lobby of the office, there'll be a delivery station. So staff can use an app to order food from the food court. Ritual will arrange for a delivery service to bring it up. Um, and put it in this delivery kiosk. So it's a way of putting mitigations in place to manage things.
1: Uh, speaking of, uh, of the food court businesses and others, I mean, they are hanging on by their fingernails. What's the food court going to look like when you come back? I'm assuming that that a lot of them just won't be able to continue.
4: Well, uh, I would say the pandemic, without a doubt, has had a, a horrific impact on our small and and Main Street businesses, many of those are located in the path. But we've got uh, the Financial District, the IA, that works with all of those businesses and the business owners, uh, building owners who work with those businesses as well. And they're signaling that, yes, while unfortunately some have not been able to continue, many, however, have been able to access uh, some of the stimulus programs that have been made available. And as soon as the customer comes back, they'll be ready to reopen. And that's critical because we've got 2,500 small and main street businesses in our downtown um, downtown business zone, and they employ on average of 10 employees. So that's about 250,000 or 25,000 jobs, rather, that'll be created as soon as we've got some return to work happening.
1: Jan, we only have uh, about a minute left, and here's a question that a lot of employers, you know, in the financial district and elsewhere are really struggling with, and that is mandatory vaccination uh on the one hand there's privacy laws and on the other employers are are you have to provide a safe workplace and and the legal opinions seem to be all over the place you know what you raise an excellent
4: point and we're actively at, uh, at the table with discussions about that i mean if we look at best practices elsewhere there are digital health IDs that are being created. Um, IBM created one for New York City, so to go into a sporting event, um, you know, it's it's um, based on a smartphone app. You just uh, touch something with it and it indicates if you're vaccinated or not. What we hear from our workforces, from the surveys that our large employers are doing, many employees are signaling they'd like to know that their fellow workers are vaccinated so that they feel they're going into a safe environment. So. We certainly understand and appreciate the privacy debate. I think we also need to say, what is the public health need here and what is the safety needs of employees? We don't have an answer yet, but we are certainly looking very carefully at best practices elsewhere and seeing
1: um, if we can help create solutions here that will be acceptable. Okay, well, we will certainly be checking back on that. Jan De Silva. thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. Bye-bye. That is all the time we have for today. People Free for All Friday is coming up tomorrow. I had to leave a lot of calls on the table, especially about renaming Dundas, renaming Sir John A. MacDonald Public School. I'm sure you have a lot to say about that. Also, on what the NDP is proposing for home care, for long-term care, is that going to be the solution? Call me tomorrow. And right now, that's all the time we have for today.